It's really about making sure that you are able to listen to problems, to make sure that people are able to talk to you about their problems and to be able to help them solve it. That's the voice of Jesus Martin Garcia, CEO of Genuro, headquartered in Geneva. Listen in to hear insights from Jesus about leadership in biopharma and how Genuro is working to develop treatments against neurological disorders and autoimmune diseases by neutralizing causal factors encoded by human endogenous retroviruses. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Jesus Martin Garcia, founder and CEO of Genuro, headquartered in Geneva. Welcome to BioBoss, Jesus. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. What led you to your role as founder and CEO at Genuro? In my entire career, I've always been working in the edge of technology and how to use technology to improve the, the life of people. And I did that in the 90s in the internet. Uh, Aleph McKinsey at the time was the term entrepreneurs didn't exist yet. They called, they called you a fool. If you're living, you were, you were leaving a nice position uh, in a successful and large company to, to get onto yourself. I was able to uh, really run that wave and, and uh, you know, dive into that opportunity, creating Switzerland's number one e-commerce company that was later sold to Migro, also getting involved in a company that uh, was a large, uh, fix, large fixed line and internet provider and, and other companies like that. Then in 2002, I turned into biotech between 2002 and 2004 initially because I was asked uh, by... Uh, the you know, local authorities and, and local universities, you know, very simple question is, you know, you're an entrepreneur, look at what's happening in biotech and try to tell us why we have almost no companies in this area. Although, you know, every single survey says that we have amongst the best universities in the world, but we have almost no biotech. And I thought I was going to do a few weeks of pro bono work uh, for, for my friends. And uh, I ended up uh, falling in love with the, with the area. Uh, it was absolutely clear that this was an area where technology could incredibly change the life of people. It was also uh, very clear to me that we're at the time where the tools that you know we, we use in, in the biotechnology field are evolving so fast that it's opening up a tremendous amount of new opportunities to, to treat patients and hopefully find cures for many of the diseases that, uh, that have been plaguing mankind for, for millennia. So I turned into this and, uh, you know, did first uh, created an, an incubator uh, with the help of the state of Geneva, industrial partners, some investors, uh, where we incubated a number of companies. And one of the companies we incubated was Genuro, which was a technology which originated from INSERM and Institut Merieux in France with the discovery of human endogenous retroviruses. I'll, I'll explain what, what that is later. But it's basically 8% of our DNA, which is made of the traces of the viruses that infected our ancestors and how they could be important in autoimmune and neurodegenerative diseases. So we decided to, you know, to, to give it a go. And uh, with Christophe Merieux at the time and Hervé Perron, uh, a scientist, we decided to put together a very small company to follow, to follow that science and see where it would lead us. And uh, I joined the company full-time at the end of uh, 2015, where we were making a partnership with a uh, firm called Servia in France, and also ready to f launch a major phase two trial in multiple sclerosis. So I, I joined the company to try to, to give it some impetus, some, some new uh, 
some new power. Before that, I was just the chairman of the board. And uh, and I've been there ever since through highs and lows, because in our industry is not only made of highs, but also a lot of lows. It was early enough, as you point out, early enough in how people were thinking about biotech and biopharma that I loved your phrase. They thought it wasn't an entrepreneur, it was a fool. So how did you how do you overcome what must have been a question in your own mind about, am I doing the right thing? How, did, was it very clear to you? I decided, you know, I wanted to be uh, to be in there, to be operational. And as much as I love McKinsey, I mean, I must say that I, I learned so much, incredibly bright people and had a fantastic time there. I, I really wanted to, to be more operational and build something with my little hands, you know, doing things. When you made this decision to, to move into a new area, it, had you considered taking your ideas about a different approach towards technology and taking them to an established company and trying to develop them there as opposed to building something from scratch? You know, it's it's always difficult to convince uh, large companies of the waves that are, that are coming. I, I can give you an example in an area which I was involved very early, which was digital photography. Uh, some friends of mine here in Switzerland have created a one of the first precursor companies in the field of digital photography, basically being able to take any digital picture and um, able to send it to a quadrichromic printing system, uh, whether, you know, the, the, the flashing uh, that was used in photography at the time or printers. And I remember some discussions with the leaders of that time in that area, which, by the way, have all disappeared, and going to them and telling them, guys, this is a huge wave, it's coming for you, and we have a solution, and this is the way you could adapt. And uh, it was way too difficult, because when you send in, in ways of doing things, it's extremely difficult for them to, to change course and, and to be able to see something, which, in fact, would become fatal for those companies. When people ask you what do you do for a living they probably they may picture you in a in a lab for instance because you work in biopharma how what is the reality what does a ceo and founder of a company like yours do each day it's really bringing things together and forward i'm not in a lab i'm not even a, a scientist uh, by training i'm a i'm a lawyer in harvard mba so you know nothing further than than the lab but uh, really my my goal is to harness all the resources together that are needed to push the company forward and to make sure that we're all pulling or pushing in the same direction, which is the success of the products uh, that we're trying to develop. And ultimately, it has to be, you know, to bring really new value to the patients. Really, the role of the CEO is not to uh, do the clinical trial or to do the preclinical research or to be in the lab. It's really making sure that, one, you harness all the necessary resources to be able to do that and then to make sure that everybody is, is, is pulling and pushing in the same direction. What have you learned as the CEO that is your management approach, that your style, your way of communicating that works for you and defines who you are? It's, it's really about listening. It's really about being making sure that uh, you are able to uh, listen to problems, to make sure that people are able to talk to you about their problems and to be able to help them solve it. Uh, if the if your need is your help is required, to be there and need to help them solve it by yourself or by pulling in the same resources. Remember that when I left McKinsey, I left it to be to be an entrepreneur. So mm -hmm. I I have the experience in creating companies from scratch. Uh, you know, when we created a shop which became Switzerland's number one e-commerce company, it was putting down the servers together and managing a team of uh, code coders, developers. 
uh, that were basically putting together a very innovative software for the time uh, to do uh, e-commerce in a, in a novel way uh, again at the time. Uh, when you're doing biotech, it's not very different. It's uh, Biotech is an incredibly cross-functional uh, industry in which you need an incredibly diverse amount of know-hows. And it is really important that those are, are brought together and work in unison. It's like an orchestra. You know, everybody's got to be playing the same tune. Uh, otherwise, it becomes cacophony extremely fast. So, uh, and it's making sure that we have the pianos that we need and uh, that we have the basses that we need and that the violins are there when you need to have a violin and, you know, and you can change that for uh, preclinical pharmacology, regulatory, CMC, uh, clinical trial, medical direction, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really about putting all that together in, in, in the way that is harmonious and advances the project. Jesus, can you remember when you were eight or nine or 10, whatever is the appropriate age, and you were thinking about, well, what do I want to do when I get to be a grown-up? And you're probably, like most of us, thinking, well, what do my parents want me to do? But in any case, can you remember that image you had, and can you see any connection to what you're doing now professionally? I was coming from a family of bankers, so, uh, you know, I picture myself very naturally as a as a banker and uh, in Switzerland, and uh, I was—I uh, actually tried it, uh, and uh, and frankly, this is something that didn't attract me too much. So uh, I diverged. I, I deferred. I went into uh, economics, law, Harvard, and and the McKinsey, and that was it. Uh, that was my 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 start of my career. I spent some time also at a place which was very f fundamental for me, which was the World Economic Forum. Uh, because Professor Klaus Schwab was one of my professors at University of Geneva, and he basically took me with him uh, to the WEF, uh, where I spent a year and a half, which was tremendously formative for me in terms of seeing how uh, you know people thought at uh, at higher levels, and also to get completely disinhibited about uh, you know important people or non-important people, and seeing that we're all the same and think more or less the same, except. The burden of our shoulders is always relative to, to, to what you're doing. There's, there's no more stress uh, for one or for the other. So that was also tremendously formative for me. What do you say when people ask, who is Genero? Genero is a company that is really dedicated to bring novel treatments for neurodegenerative and autoimmune diseases, which is a huge area of medical need. And we do so by leveraging the biology and novel biology of the viruses within our DNA, which we believe is incredible levers to change the course of these diseases. And can you tell me a little bit about why it is that the, I think it's sometimes referred to as the fossil uh, aspect of this that is important. Fossil, and fossil versus, actually it's, it's, it's a very, very well, it's a good image you're using, John. Uh, they call fossil viruses because they have been integrated into our DNA by viruses that contaminated our ancestors. Viruses can replicate, they don't have the machinery, so they, use, they need to use our cells. And by using our cells, they leave traces within our own DNA, which they're using. And if that's a germline cell, it will be passed on to all the descendants. The same trace will be passed on to all descendants. And this has happened since you know, millions and millions of years with, with uh, all animals that are subject to viruses, and obviously also the last 100,000 years in the human species. And today we have uh, human endogenous viruses, which are fossil viruses in our DNA, and they represent 8% of our total DNA. There's about 30 families 
that represent 8% of our total DNA. If you compare that with classical gene-producing, uh, you know, protein-producing genes, we're talking about uh, 2% of our DNA. So this is something which is three to four times larger of what we see in normal producing genes. That is very important. You know, it's human arrogance, uh, which you can see over history all the time. What we don't understand, we call junk or, you know, unimportant. And uh, for a very, very long time, everybody was focusing on this 2 to 3% of genes that are producing proteins very clearly in transaxons. And uh, the rest was unimportant. And, and, and today we're realizing more and more, because we have the tools to do that, that uh, that part that the rest of the DNA is in fact extremely important in 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 the health and in disease, and uh, our company was based on discoveries that were made at Institut Mérieux and Inserm already almost forty years ago, published for the first time in the Lancet in ninety one about viral proteins that looked like viruses but they weren't really viruses because they could not replicate like a virus. And everybody was wondering, you know, what, what does that come from? And it took the sequencing of the human genome back in 2002 to actually realize that a big part of our DNA was made of viral, of viral genes and that they were there. And normally they're very well controlled. That's the good news. If, if that 8% of our DNA was producing proteins all the time, we would simply not be alive. But the problem is that when a gene from the environment, sorry, from a virus from the environment, you know, the viruses we all know about, the, the EBVs, SARS-CoV-2s, etc. When they interact with the cell, they take away, one of the things they want to do is to use the cell for replication. So one of the things they do is they take away the breaks against viral replication. And what happens is that some of the cousins within our own DNA, those fossil viruses, can then be expressed. And in some cases, that will lead to the production of pathogenic proteins, which are still active, uh, you know, as viral proteins, considered as self because produced by the cell. So it's not recognized by the, uh, by the body as a foreign threat. It is something which is produced by a cell, but it can initiate an, a, uh, an, uh, immune, immune reaction. Thus autoimmune type of reaction, something that comes from self, but will trigger. The, in the innate immune system. And we'll be working on MS, but, uh, you know, which is our, our main area. And again, we're a very small company, so we, we focus on very few areas of activity. But the potential of, of this technology, of this, of this application of trying to block these proteins from our fossil viral genes is absolutely yeah. tremendous. Do you find that, in addition to your current focus on MS and ALS, do you find that people's greater understanding about viruses because of COVID, obviously. Has that helped the general understanding of the work that you're doing? Yes, I, th I think that there's several things, several factors that, that will play for us uh, in, in the medium term. The first one has been, uh, obviously, that the amount of great work that has been done with SARS-CoV-2 uh, and COVID, because, you know, the, we've been threatened by this bug that nobody knew about. And there's the best minds on the planet has been, have been trying to understand what it does. And one of the things it does is it does de-repress some of our fossil uh, in our in the fossil cousins within our DNA. And so the data that we've seen has been published so far shows that this may be the most important trigger in post-COVID or long COVID. 
you know, these neurological symptoms that people have uh, long term, they last, you know, three, six, 12 months after the disease. People are having major cognition problems, brain fog, fatigue, anxiety, depression. And that these fossil viral uh, particles within our DNA may be uh, the, one of the, uh, you know, most clear explanations of what that's happening. And this is why we're starting the clinical trial, actually, so very soon. I mean, we had the okay from the authorities a few weeks ago, and we're now preparing for the launch of a trial against the neuropsychiatric uh, syndromes post-COVID. And that was a fantastic, I would say, collective effort from academia. And believe me, when people told me there was a link between COVID and, and fossil viruses, my first reaction was, you know, let's stay away from this. Uh, but when I saw the amount of data that was generated and the fact that those people have a very nasty protein that comes from viral genes that are circulating and uh, that it is known for its pathogenicity on, on neural system cells that would explain many of those neuropsychiatric symptoms, you know, we, we, we had, we had to go ahead and, and we are now on track of that. The second thing that will also help us medium term is that we're starting now to have the tools for deep sequencing. Because when people say, you know, in the in the general literature and the general press, you know, uh, somebody has DNA has been sequenced. In fact, what you're sequencing is only 2% of the human DNA, which is the easy part. Uh, because we know it very well, it's very well mapped, and uh, you basically cut into little pieces and you have a software put it back together. But when we're talking about the rest of our DNA, it's much more complex. And for example, with human industrial retroviruses, it's 30 families representing 8% of our DNA. So it's hundreds of thousands of copies, which are spread all over the DNA. And in addition to it, we all have the same gene that codes for the color of our eyes on the same chromosome. In HERVs, human industrial retroviruses, it's, it's all around the place. There's fixed copies and fixed copies. You'll find more of this kind of copies on Caucasians, more of this on, on uh, East Africans, more of this in Inuits. It's, it depends really of, of who was infected by what uh, and the differences between human groups and individuals are, are tremendous. So imagine the difficulty with the tools we had, which was to break it down in little pieces and to put it back together with software. You cannot deal with that complexity. So it's been only a few uh, groups that have those kind of technology, like University of Utah and Cornell, uh, that have been looking at human industrial retroviruses in the past. But now with the deep sequencing becoming cheaper and more affordable, and, and if you allow me the word, which is not the right word, smarter, uh, we're going to be able to really start tracking a lot more and understanding a lot more of which of this fossil uh, few, fossil viral uh, genes are, are, are doing what in, in what diseases. When people hear the story about Genoro and what do they misunderstand? What, what category would they like to place you in, which you're not really in? And then how do you help get back on track? I think the biology is better and better understood. Although if you had told me, you know, when we started the company, this was really not classic biology. And those are the kind of things you can get easily burned with. If you're not in the canonic uh, space, uh, you're talking about, um, you know, proteins coming from junk DNA. People have uh, sometimes a bit of a, uh, of a, you know, this is not, this is not classical. No, thank you. 
Uh, I, I think it's it's really a mix. Um, I think now more and more people are interested in this area, in this field. Um, I even saw that uh, one of the major U.S. funds, flagship, not too uh, cited, I started a company looking at proteins from the uh, what they call the rest of the DNA. Uh, so, you know, the, the interest is coming. I think another another area which is which is hard uh, to convince investors with is neurodegeneration, because it is a really hard area in the sense that uh, you know we like the animal models and uh, and uh, it's uh, very human specific and those are slow processes. So anything you do in clinical trials, you know, we, we have never done a clinical trial for under a year. Uh, this is not oncology uh, or cardio where you can have biomarkers. This this is really about how people neurodegenerate and we don't do it all at the same rate because we have different brain plasticity and, and different cognitive reserve uh, from each other. So, so uh, I, I say those are the two major breaks. But on the other hand, I insist on the fact that whoever cracks the neurodegeneration nut, you know, is in first of all to bring a dramatic improvement to the life of millions of patients. So every effort you can do in this area is really worth it. And second of all, if you are able to do that, then you will also be rewarded by tremendous, uh, you know, financial success. But this is an area of huge need. Yes, it is a difficult area, but if you have good solutions and, and, and good demonstration that you can crack this nut and, and this is something that you have a decent, a very good shot actually bringing solutions that it's really worth it for the patients millions of them suffering and also that would if, if success with patients will also mean a tremendous financial windfall when people do misunderstand and, and categorize and uh, pigeonhole and say oh you're a x company or a y company what are those categories they try to place you to that you are not it's really the difference between viruses and human and viruses because they're called the same. And people don't understand that we're trying to tackle uh, not infectious diseases, but chronic diseases where viral fossil proteins are key, are central to the process. What makes a good partner for Genoro? A good partner is somebody you can share the vision and the objectives with. It's, it's somebody with whom you're you're pulling in the same direction and you're really sharing the, the objectives and the goals. And we, for example, are very blessed to have a fantastic number of, uh, of, of great academic partners. In the U.S., we worked a lot with uh, NINDS, National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, which are a fantastic uh, group of people. We've been working with them in ALS and also a little bit in long COVID. Uh, we've been blessed also by all those groups that came with the data about uh, SARS-CoV-2 and uh, the uh, retrovirus, human industrial retroviruses, HERBs, and uh, the demonstration that they could be central to the neuropsychiatric uh, symptoms that a lot of people are experiencing post-COVID. It's actually millions of people. So, uh, so it, it's really about about these identity of views of of trying to bring really novel solutions to patients, and who says novel solutions? There's many ways of bringing novel. You can bring novel because you have novel ways of approaching the problem, like you know, gene and uh, and cell therapies, which are very much uh, the, the the flavor uh, of today's uh, biopharma world. But if you look at that, it's it's just new ways of delivering uh, old. Uh, you know, it's it's those are tools, uh, not necessarily uh, cures. 
And what we're trying to do is the good old-fashioned innovation in biology, which is, uh, you know, there's a biology in there which is provoking something and you can neutralize it by applying a pharmaco solution. What are the qualities that suggest people will thrive at Genoro? What, what are you looking for when you're looking to bring people in-house? I think, you know, a lot of it has, has to do with, with dedication and passion uh, to, to this idea of bringing real novel treatments to patients. Uh, it's also obviously competence. Uh, this is something which you can replace. You cannot put a trumpetist uh, behind a violin, otherwise you'll have a, you'll, you'll have a problem real soon. Uh, so especially when you're not the Philharmonic Orchestra of Vienna, you know, with hundreds of, uh, of violins and uh, dozens of pianos where, you know, unless you have a very, very good ear, a piano can go a little bit south. Uh, you won't, you won't notice. Uh, when you have a small orchestra, you need all the instruments to be able to play really well. Uh, and that's, uh, and that's, that's critical for a small company. If you can get that, then outsource it. Uh, but you cannot, you cannot have, uh, you know, people, people have been able to contribute, uh, to, to the common goal really fast. And people that, uh, also like to, uh, to, uh, ask questions, curious people, people that, you know, are not afraid of bringing up problems or, or making questions. Uh, those, those are critical. If questions are not asked internally, uh, then you will always find out too late. In what ways is the pipeline at Genoro an expression of your vision for what you're trying to achieve at the company? It is the, the tip of the arrow of what we're trying to achieve. It's the tip of the arrow that is trying to penetrate the goal and, and the target. Uh, that's how we call it. The tip of the arrow today is multiple sclerosis. We have our phase two data showing that we can have a strong impact on the key markers of neurodegeneration. Uh, it is the same product is actually could, could be extremely useful in, in PASC, in post-COVID neuropsychiatry. So we're applying it there. And uh, we have another arrow today in, uh, against ALS mm-hmm. in partnership with the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. But I would, I would consider our pipeline today as the tip of the arrow. Again, the number of possible applications of uh, this vision that uh, these fossil viruses within our DNA are critical in health and disease and therefore can be used and leveraged uh, to block proteins or to stimulate processes in, in, in autoimmune and the neurodegenerative diseases is, is huge. And for me, it's really a question when, when you're a small company and you're constraining resources, you really need to find that tip of an arrow and try to penetrate as fast as possible towards the target. If you try to 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 make it too large uh, or too wide, then you know you could uh, you you could very rapidly lose focus and 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 actually not be successful where you could have been. If Genero succeeds where you hope it will. What effect will it have on patients? Will it be an incremental effect? Will it be a significant effect? What do you foresee? It's a huge impact. If you take MS today, we have 16 drugs that are available on the market, and they're great drugs for cutting acute inflammation, which means you know, making sure that the patients don't have relapses. But unfortunately, 85% of the patients, although they are treated properly against relapses and effectively against relapses, will have the disability progress over time to the point where they unfortunately will be losing 
the ability, uh, you know, movement and uh, and independence and uh, ability to work, et cetera, et cetera. And that that's that's eighty five percent of patients. So I would say that the 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 drugs today are absolutely fantastic, needed, and and a great contribution of the industry. Uh, to multiple sclerosis, but we still need drugs that can change the course of this disease, which none can. And what we're trying to do is bring a drug that can change the course of the disease. So that will be a phenomenal change for people that are diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which today can be offered a relatively good quality of life initially with the anti-inflammatory drugs, but know that long-term there is very little to shield them against disability progression. When you look at ALS, I mean, the question is pretty obvious. This is unfortunately a disease that is, you know, killing people at an incredible rate. This is the oncology of neurology, if, if you allow me to, to say to say those words. And uh, with the NINDS, we have, we have really looked at what seems to be a causal factor in sporadic ALS, which is this protein coming from the, uh, the fossil uh, viral genes that is actually uh, able to destroy motor neurons. So uh, same thing for, for PASC, you know, post-acute sequelae of COVID. Those are people like you and I that actually just had COVID, maybe not even in a very strong form, but today they've lost um, major cognitive functions uh, and they are they are unable to live a normal life and and uh, and go back to work. I think the last thing I saw it was a million people that are completely out of work in the United States because of long COVID. Uh, a million completely out of work. I mean, those numbers are just gigantic, and uh, if we can really you know, uh, block the protein that maybe causes that neuropsychiatric damage, that could be a tremendous contribution for those people. So yeah, we we're we are we are really looking at, at you know we we're not in the incremental improvements. Uh, we we really are our ambition at least is to provide major improvements in those areas. And the same for other autoimmune diseases. I don't think there's many autoimmune diseases where today you have uh, you have things that can really stop them. What we knew what we do in most cases is stop the symptoms. Is work on the symptoms, which is in the inflammation part, generally by suppressing it. Uh, and we really are looking at what are the mechanisms that lead to that autoimmunity and how can they be stopped? It sounds like there's a significant puzzle that you're working on here that not too many others are working on in terms of uh, how you're looking at the biology. In, in trying to put that puzzle together, do you have time at this point, perhaps on a weekend, once a year, to, to step back a step and say, you know, if this develops the way I hope it will, We're, we really are going to change the lives of people? Or is it in the nature of an entrepreneur and someone who's starting something like this that you have to just be completely focused on the scientific puzzle and then those thoughts about the utility of it come later? You know, you don't have a lot of time to be to be thinking about, uh, about you know, the puzzle. Basically, what you do is you decide you're going to, you, you're trying to bring a solution and you're trying to put everything together. The complexity of uh, the biology cannot go on to the complexity of what you're doing. Uh, you know, biology is, is, a, is a field of creativity and creation because there's so much we don't understand and where people need to come up with new ideas. Developing a drug is, is, very, is a very Germanic uh, attitude, you know, very little creativity uh in drug development you have to follow the path uh 
and to tick all the boxes until the moment you have proven your efficacy. So, so I, I, I see the distinction between both. And although I, I like the creativity part, uh, most of my job is, 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 is leading the, the Germanic, uh, path of everything that needs to be done and achieved to convince uh, our partners, uh, but most importantly, you know, doctors, uh, patients, uh, regulators uh, to to help us, and obviously investors, to conduct fun clinical trials and, and, and move forward. How, how would you talk about the mechanism of action or what you're trying, of what the company is working on? It's It's actually something which is not that complicated because since very, very long times, autoimmune diseases have been associated with infections. And that goes back to uh, Professor Charcot in the 19th century. Okay, so nothing new there. Uh, what the, the virus, the virus importance in autoimmune diseases comes and goes. Uh, because nobody really can get its, 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 his, its, his or her hands around that. But recently, for example, this was this tremendous article uh, uh, that, that was basically saying that EBV causes MS. You may have heard about it. It's, it's done a tremendous amount of noise and brought back viruses to the, uh, to the first uh, line or first light in autoimmune diseases and MS. And that's really interesting because if EBV really caused MS, then 95% of the people in the world would have multiple sclerosis, which is thankfully not the case. So what you need is what is the mechanism by which EBV which is obviously necessary. It's not only UBV, actually, it's, it's the entire herpes virus family. Can you know put put in in play a process that can lead to MS? And this is where our fossil DNA, viral DNA, plays in, because we've been showing for over you know ten years that EBV and the herpes family of viruses that have a high tropism for the brain can actually trigger the expression of these proteins in the microglia of the, who, who will become MS patients. And it's not everybody, it's only a few people. And do we know why? No, we don't. Uh, but I can give you another example that has been done uh, during the, by, by academia, people, people in academia during the SARS-CoV-2. When you expose the blood cells of healthy volunteers to SARS-CoV-2, in 80% of the cases, nothing happened. And then in about 20% of the cases, people start expressing WR, which is a very pathogenic protein. And once this protein is expressed, it's not going to stop expressing itself, whether you have SARS-CoV-2 or not. This is why when we learned that from the beginning, we said, uh-oh, people are probably going to end up with, with severe neurological symptoms long-term. And, and it happens to be true today. Today, we have the evidence that that is actually happening and uh, that that protein is present in a very large number of those people that have neuropsychiatric symptoms, heavy neuropsychiatric symptoms post-COVID. And the good news is we have the antibody, at least, to try to stop it. And this is what we're going to start in the next few weeks. So it's really this, you know, when I have to explain our mode of action, it's really about this interaction between the viruses in our environment and the viruses within our cells, the fossil viruses within our cells. And that when combined together, you know, they can lead to a number of autoimmune situations and a number of neurodegenerative situations, including MS, including long COVID, including LS, including many others like that. Which areas of thought leadership regarding the future of biopharma are currently the most engaging for you? As a society, we got to have to deal with the uh, 
increasing a, a amount of, of healthcare, healthcare costs. And we have an aging population and uh, the aging, the fact of people are aging is also, you know, making them more fragile to a lot of uh, chronic and neurodegenerative diseases. And we're going to have to find ways to, to tackle that. And I think we all have to think about how to make the cost of development of drugs, uh, you know, while keeping the gold standards, but make them lower. And also to try to make drugs once approved more accessible, but I, but I think it goes together. And uh, I was actually, you know, uh, there was this recent FDA decision about uh, a drug that, uh, you know, everybody knows about in, uh, in Alzheimer's. And everybody started yelling and crying about, I have no opinion. I'm not an Alzheimer's person. I have no opinion whether it was the right thing to do or not the right thing to do. But I thought it was pretty interesting to see that the FDA was going from, you know, wanting clinical endpoints, which are extremely hard to achieve and, uh, you know, almost impossible and a hurdle for any development in this area, which would make the drugs, the cost of drugs in this area prohibitive, whoever cracks the nut. To, you know, biomarker-based decisions. And I think that we need a lot more of biomarker-based thinking in terms of developing drugs. Uh, obviously, with gold standards of safety and gold standards in terms of the association between biomarkers and ultimate and ultimate uh, response. Let me let me give you an example. We we have a drug, Temelimab, for multiple sclerosis. We've shown many many times now today in three in three different trials that it can cut in a very strong way about fifty percent. The rate of atrophy of the of the cortex that can only be good for patients, right? But how do you translate that into a clinical benefit is much more difficult, and uh, and it's going to be it's going to be long, it's going to be expensive, it's going to be through clinical trials of actually designing with with potential partners and regulators, but. You, 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 you can also see, see it in a way of saying, okay, wait a minute, but if we are actually reducing the atrophy by 50%, and that could be confirmed in clinical trials of a substantial size, isn't this something that should be good for the patient and therefore provided to them without waiting another 10 years or 10, I'm exaggerating, but three or four years? until this can be proven in a clinical trial that will cost, you know, several hundred millions of dollars. And uh, and those are the kind of questions that we have to ask ourselves about uh, as a society is about what what is a way of developing drugs? Because if the cost of developing drugs continues skyrocketing, then the price of drugs will continue skyrocketing and, uh, and it's going to be a, a, a society disaster um, because the number of patients can, the number of diseases can only increase as we increase the the lifespan, you know, uh, the cancer hasn't exploded tremendously over the last 50 years. It's just that the number of people that live over 60 has expanded dramatically. Uh, you know, same thing for Alzheimer's, same thing for for many many diseases. So we got to we got to think back and 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 how we develop drugs is probably one of the uh, the biggest challenges we have going forward. Because if we keep uh, you know, increasing the, uh, the, uh, the requirements sometimes for, for purposes which are not understandable and, uh, and therefore exponentially increasing the costs. 
then we're going to end up with drugs which are unfortunately not uh, not affordable by everybody. And I think that everybody that develops a drug, at least we are, uh, would like to have uh, his or her drug in the hands of as many patients as possible. All those that require it is, is really the goal for all of us. Thanks for speaking with me today, Jesus. Thank you for having me, John. Like several biopharma founders and CEOs who have been my guest on BioBoss, Jesus followed a sometimes challenging path to find his place as a leader in biopharma. He describes his journey, being introduced to the world of banking, it wasn't for him, to consulting, and building new technology companies, to falling in love with biopharma. A career trajectory like his is not without challenges. As Jesus told me, he loved his work in consulting and enjoyed the intellectual ferment of working with so many bright people. But when he announced to his colleagues at the firm that he was leaving to build something with his own hands, they wondered, why would anyone leave such a nice position in a successful and large company? Jesus goes on to explain how he not only fell in love with the field of biology, but also realized that while he needs to pay strict attention to the details of drug discovery, there is, within biopharma, a creative space that he is drawn to and thrives in. If you're a regular listener to BioBoss, you'll recognize this desire for a founder or CEO to build something new, to plug into the creative energy around biology, to be a part of improving people's lives. You'll also hear from Jesus a familiar reminder that our biopharma community has, by its nature, more failures than successes, and it takes a steady hand to bring new drug candidates to the clinic, and then as an approved therapy to patients. For Jesus, the key factor for success appears to be the art of listening, encouraging people to share their views and identify potential problems and solutions. As Jesus said, if questions are not asked internally, then you will always find out too late. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss.